listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Singley. If you've been with us in 2013, you know that we're in this series called Centered, looking at Jesus, the center of the Christian faith, the foundation of the Christian faith. We're looking at his life, his miracles, his parables, his teachings. We just finished up his parables, um, and now we're moving into his teachings. And today, um, we come to uh, a teaching that is very, very important, but very difficult. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I told you that one of the unique things about Jesus is that he has no issue going places that everybody would prefer him not go. Um, and that day we talked about money, which of course leaves us only one more option, which is sex. So today we're going to be talking about sex, and Jesus is going to be talking to us about sex and lust in our lives as Christians. Now, um, I'm not ignorant here. I know how difficult a topic this is. Um, in, in my days counseling in, in the clinic here in Sioux Falls, um, I would say that somewhere around 80% of the issues that people came in with dealt with or were wrapped around or had sexuality somewhere involved. It just, it just influences so much of our lives. And I know that many of you have great difficulties. Um, I know that many of you have some big wounds in this area. Um, but nonetheless, this could not be more of an important issue for our lives as Christians because it forms us. It makes us the kind of people that we are. Um, and, and so God is very interested in our lives um, sexually. And, and so no more need for any more flowery introduction. I, I have no doubts that you will all stay awake today. Um, uh, let's just get right into the text here. Uh, this is, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. And we're just going to read it together. Uh, verse 27 of Matthew 5, this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, you have, heard it, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we desperately need you. Um, Not just because this topic is difficult, but because this topic is so broad and vast and it affects so much of our lives. Uh, So we pray that you would come in and you would teach us what we need to understand about sexuality, about your plan for it, about what it points us to and leads us to and how it forms our lives and shapes us as the people of God. Pray that you would make us into the kind of people that you want us to be. We love you today and we trust you, Jesus. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Okay, a lot is going on in this passage. Obviously, Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon, and he's talking to people about um, every area of their life, but he's also addressing the Pharisees here. He's addressing works righteousness. There's a lot of different areas that we could go to in this passage, and I don't have enough time to cover them all, so I'm going to take a specific angle because of what I, I feel like God has laid on my heart this week. Um, and he's done that through some reading that I've been doing. Now, I'm going to recommend some books. I'm going to give you a little reading list because um, there's several great books that have helped me in what I've come to today. The first book is Premarital Sex in America. It's written by two sociologists. This is an empirical, scientific book. It's loaded with data. Um, The studies that they did for this book are just astounding. And so this is a scientific, factual book. I highly recommend this, especially if you have kids coming up um, 
who are, are entering that time of their life where this is going to be a battle for them. Um, it's called How Young Mar- Americans Meet, Made, and Think About Marrying by Mark Rignaris and Jeremy Euchre. I'm going to be working off some of that data in there. Um, also, this book, Real Sex, by Lauren Winner, The Naked Truth About Chastity. I've never read a book so good at theologically explaining the reason for Christian chastity. In other words, the church is pretty good about saying don't have sex, but they're not very good at saying why. And she does that here. So you'll want to read that book. Any of you will want to read that book. Um, Of course, C.S. Lewis always has some great things to say about sexuality. And um, Glittering Vices, the book that I mentioned when we talked about greed, um, she's got a whole section on lust as uh, one of the capital vices. So um, there's a little reading list for you because I can't possibly do enough here. Uh, This topic is very spacious and broad. Now, when when I was reading... And as I was pouring over the scripture, I said, okay, what is, what's the message that we need to hear, God? Because there's many things that we could pull out of this passage. And something really stunned me as I was going through um, Euchre and Rignaris' book on premarital sex in America. And that is the idea of scripts and stories. Okay? So their big point is that we don't get our ideas about sex from thin air. They're taught and learned. They say, this, they say sexual values do not simply evolve, but they are taught and learned. People don't act in certain ways simply because they're male or female or because they're 20 years old or because they're white or because their parents got a divorce, nor do they meticulously weigh the costs and benefits of different action strategies before moving forward. Rather, people pay attention to and live out compelling and attractive stories. Marketing experts figured this out long ago. It's taken social scientists a bit longer. So what are they meaning by this? They're saying that you all are following a script. You're following a story with your life sexually. Um, these things can come from your parents. You know, I was taught in my home that you don't have sex until you get married. That is a sexual script. That's a sexual story. But young people today are getting very different sexual scripts and sexual stories, and they're following them. And this is what Euchre, um, Jeremy Euchre and Mark Rignera say. They say... Um, Young people are most influenced by these stories, by these scripts. He says, when we asked Kate, a 20-year-old sexually experienced interviewee, how she came to think about sex the way she does, she said, I just think that it's a mixture of everything that I've heard you're supposed to do. So when a woman perceives pressure to sleep with her boyfriend because they've been going out for four months already, even if he hasn't verbalized it, she's listening to a story that says that is what good girlfriends are supposed to do at that point in the romantic relationship. Additionally, when a young man cycles through online porn, he wonders whether he, too, can ever have sex like that. The people in the photos and the videos are. He thinks it would be unbelievable to experience what he's seeing. Some of his friends report and perhaps distort amazing encounters with women who've said yes with no strings attached. He hopes he'll get a chance and that it'll unfold like that, too. This, too, is a story about sex. Maybe some of you have had similar experiences. You say, yep, I, I can recognize that story. Maybe some of you girls have been talking to your friends when you were teenagers, and they said, well, I slept with my boyfriend after a couple of months because, you know, I just figured, hey, you get, somebody told me I'm going to lose him if I don't. Or maybe some of you guys, you grew up in the locker room like I did, and you heard all the sexual stories from the older guys telling what they did with their girlfriends or what they did with girls that they just met. And those are powerful things for shaping you and forming you. They're, they're powerful stories and scripts that give us something to follow. And sexual scripts can affect people of all ages. I mean, just look at the TV shows and the movies that we watch. Look at, think about Desperate Housewives for a moment. What does that tell married people? It tells you that married sex 
is boring, and that if you really want good sex, you have to have an extramarital affair. If you really want thrilling sex, it's got to be outside of your marriage. Think about some of the movies that we watch. They, they glorify um, unmarried, extramarital, premarital sex and say, oh, married sex is old, it's stale, it's boring, it's dull. Research doesn't even support the picture that they're painting. But nonetheless, it's a script that people follow and it's very powerful. Scripts can also be institutionalized. Um, you can have whole institutions giving powerful sexual scripts to people that they follow unknowingly. Um, Euchre and Regneris give this example of football weekend. They say Daniel, or Danielle, is a 19-year-old college student in Texas. During our interview, we discussed fraternity and sorority life on campus. She spoke of an annual football weekend during which it's customary for fraternity members to invite dates, quote-unquote, to spend the weekend with them in Dallas. For couples who are already in a sexual relationship, it's obvious both whom to invite and what to do after an evening of bar hopping. For fraternity brothers who aren't in such a relationship, the answer to both questions isn't so apparent. But whoever they invite is expected, that's the key word, expected to spend the night with them in a hotel room with another couple, in one pair in each bed. So someone that maybe you just met, maybe you're on a first date, this is an expectation because of the institution. It's a script. Sure, she could say, no, I'm not going to do that. But that would risk being totally socially ostracized because of the script. You're supposed to follow the story. And Euchre and Regneris say that emerging adults really are just looking around, trying to figure out from each other what they ought to want and do and when. They can convince each other of all sorts of things. Now, this is what I want you to remember. This is powerful. This hit me like a ton of bricks. They say, if the advice in Cosmopolitan, which is one of the most sexually explicit magazines you can read, if the advice in Cosmopolitan suddenly turns sexually conservative, which of course won't happen, they say, we're convinced that millions would begin to give such ideas new consideration. So in other words, if all of a sudden Cosmo started saying, hey, you know what, the best sex is actually in marriage. You know, you need to, you need to consider a, a monogamous committed relationship if you really want hot sex. They're saying people would, in droves, millions would start thinking differently about sex. But of course they won't do that. But that's because we're following sexual scripts. And they say, you know, when it comes to not having sex, there are just very few voices, um, there are very few social voices enforcing a sexual script, giving kids a sexual script to say, hey, it's best if you use sex inside of the covenant of marriage. So there's just no, there's no voices saying that. And so it's not reinforced. It's not reinforced by their parents. And by the way, parents, you need to know that you're way more powerful than you think here for giving your parents or for giving your kids a sexual script to live by. But they're not getting it at school. They're not getting it um, from TV for sure. They're not getting it from magazines. In fact, the, the opposite script is being reinforced. I want you to know here, friends, that at Life Church, we are going to be committed to giving you all and your children a sexual script to follow because <laughs> Jesus is committed to doing that. And among other things, I think that's one of the big things that Jesus is doing in this passage is he's saying, I'm going to give you a story, a sexual script to follow, and it's going to be powerful, and I want it etched on your brain. I mean, he could not use more graphic imagery here. He wants you to remember something. I'm talking about eyes gouging out and hands being cut off. He wants something written, in, inscribed on your brain so that you don't forget it when it comes to sexuality. And so I want to look at three things about 
the Christian sexual script, the sexual script that Jesus is advocating here. First of all, he's approving of the Old Testament script. So we're going to look at God's sexual script in the Old Testament. And he goes back to that in the first verse. Then I want to look at what Jesus adds to the sexual script of the Old Testament. Because he makes an addition. He doesn't say, that's all a bunch of garbage and I'm going to tell you something completely different. He said, now think about this. Here's an add-on. Here's something in addition to what you thought. And then I want to, to show you how Jesus urges us to follow this script. He gives us some powerful imagery and says, I'm urging you to follow this script because of the path that it will lead you down, because of the kind of people that it will make you to be. All right, so here we go. God's sexual script. Some of you are looking at me like, oh my goodness. You know, what, are we, what are we in for today? I know what I'm doing here, all right? I know how unpopular this sounds. But this is Jesus Christ here. We have to say, if we're Christians, we have to say, yep, this is what I'm signing up for. All right? God's sexual script in the Old Testament. Jesus refers back to it in the first verse. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay? So that's referring back to the Old Testament law. And we've got to do a little background work in order to get up to that point even. Um, So we go back to Genesis where we find the beginning um, of sex. And any... Christian sexual ethic begins with the fact that God created us with bodies. You know, notice that the Christian sexual story begins with God making Adam and then God making Eve, and he wasn't surprised that they came out with genitals. It didn't shock him. He was like, yes, this is what I'm intending. He didn't, he wasn't surprised by it. And so he says that these bodies are good, and Christians believe that our bodies are good. You know, we're not Gnostics that say the spirit is good and the body is bad and we just somehow, someday hope to escape this terrible body. No, we believe that the body is good. And then God creates sex and he gives Eve to Adam. And then Genesis 2, we have all of a sudden this incredible love poem that Adam is singing to Eve and they're both naked and God's looking on and we're like, this is in the Bible? Two people naked singing songs about loving each other and, and God's looking on? Yes, this is in the Bible. And, and so, you know, if someone ever says to you, wow, Christians just have such a negative attitude towards sex, that's just totally mistaken. And Jesus is not giving a negative attitude towards sex here. Christians have a view of sex that sex is very powerful because of its power to form you. And therefore, we're very careful with sex. We're very guarded with sex, even narrow with sex, but certainly not negative. I mean, there's no way you can get a negative view of sex from the Bible. If you look at Proverbs, let a man be... Um, satisfied all his days with the, his wife's breasts. And, and look at um, uh, Song of Solomon, this whole chap- several chapters of romantic love and lovemaking and even describing people in states of arousal. I mean, in, in the Jewish tradition, they didn't even allow kids to read the Song of Solomon until they were of a certain age because it was that sexual, but sexual in a positive way. And so we cannot get a negative view of sex from the Bible or from Christianity. So the first thing we understand is that Sex is good. God created it good. But there's a caveat. There's a footnote. It is fallen. Of course, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and so, like everything else, the sexual drive is fallen. It's distorted. It's, it's whacked out. Um, it, now, now we have desires that we shouldn't have, that God wouldn't want us to have, and so we know we also have to be careful with sexuality. Okay, so it's good. It's fallen. And then we also learn that it's a covenant good. Now, this is um, what we learn about uh, where, where Jesus is talking here in verse 27. He says, you shall not commit adultery, which literally means if you're married, don't have sex with someone you're not married to. And, and 
if you're unmarried, don't have sex with a married person. But on a more broad level, it says, don't have sex outside of a covenant. Or, um, to put it in a positive way, have sex only inside a covenant. Okay? Um, now, what is a covenant? Um, this is an archaic word. It's an old word. And we don't have a better word for it. Um, and Christina explained it in the discipleship class as it's, it's like a contract in that it's serious, it's legal, it's binding, but it's deeper than that. It's something um, more intimate than that. Um, and she talked about how God elects and God promises and God seals when he makes a covenant with his people. And so a covenant between a man and a wife um, is like that. It's, it's, a, it's a legal binding thing. It's serious, but it's not just like a business relationship. It's more intimate and close than that. And so God is saying, sex only inside of a covenant. That is the standard. Now, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says it simply and beautifully. He says, there's no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your spouse or else total abstinence. Let's not beat around the bush here. That's what it is. That's the Christian ethic. If you're going to be a Christian, that's what you sign up for sexually. Now, he says, this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct, as it is now, has gone wrong. And of course, the Christian story, the Christian um, script about sex, explains why we have sexual desires outside of marriage, before marriage, um, because it's gone wrong, because something's gone awry. Okay? Now, what's the big deal about sex only inside the covenant of marriage? Well, um, as we've already mentioned, we, we believe that as Christians that sex is powerful because it forms us. It makes us the kind of people that we become. And so God is very concerned about it. Now, why would he say only sex inside of a covenant? Um, there are many reasons, but the first reason that I'll give to you, um, and the big, one of the big reasons, is that um, if, we, if sex inside of a covenant is a covenant good, then sex outside of a covenant is a consumer good. And so Christians say that sex is a covenant good. It's a good to be enjoyed inside a, a faithful, loving covenant of marriage. Whereas sex outside of a covenant is a consumer good. Now, what's the difference? Um, how many of you are in business of some sort here and you have relationships with other vendors? Okay. You, you'll understand this really well. Um, you have relationships with some vendors and you say, well, this person gives me this product at this price, and so we have a relationship. But the moment somebody else comes along and offers me a better deal, I'm out. And that's what a consumer relationship is. It says, yeah, sure, you're fine for right now. Um, I will have sex with you, and, and, and we can go out, and we can live together or whatever. But the moment a better offer comes along, I'm out. That's, that's what it means to treat sex as a consumer good rather than a covenant good. And what does sex become in that kind of a situation? Well, it becomes marketing. Think about the pressure that puts on sex. Well, now, if I don't, if I don't perform, if I don't put on a good enough show, if I'm not better than the last person and the last person and the last guy and the last guy, then how am I going to keep this person? Because surely they're going to think another better offer is going to come along. And this is why many studies have shown that married people are actually more sexually satisfied than unmarried people. Don't read Cosmo. It's not true. Most studies have shown that married people have the best sex. Why? Because you can actually be yourself. I mean, in, in, in the covenant of marriage, sex is not marketing at all because the covenant provides you a safe zone. Do you see that? It provides you a zone where you can finally be yourself. You can finally let the other person see your, your insecurities, your weaknesses. 
You can finally be vulnerable with them. You can finally let your hair down because the covenant says, I'm committed to you regardless of what happens. I'm committed to you up front. I'm not looking. There's no plan B out there. There's no back door. It's legal and binding. So we're in this till death do we part. And so you don't have to worry about all that other stuff. You're free to be yourself. You're free to enjoy it. You know, one lady said that um, she was interviewed in the New York Times about uh, um, cohabitation. And um, they were doing this little study on it and, and trying to find out some of the results uh, of what cohabitation leads to. And she said that she felt like I was on a never-ending audition to be his wife. That's what, that's what sex outside of marriage is, really. It's an audition. It's saying, I, I don't know if you're good enough for me, so I'm going to try you out for a while. Uh, whereas uh, sex inside the covenant of marriage um, becomes a way of saying, I'm committed to you and you only forever. And I'm acting that out with my body. See what you're doing? You're, it's, it's a covenant renewal ceremony. That's what sex becomes inside of marriage. Every time you have sex with your spouse, you're saying, I love you and you only forever. And we're renewing our covenant now. I'm acting out physically what I've done with my mouth and my whole life. And in this way, Christian sex is also way more congruent than any other kind of sex. Because you're saying, I'm only going to do with my body what I'm willing to do with the rest of my life. I'm only going to do with my body what I've done with my heart, my mind, my finances. Everything about me is going to be open to this person, and then I open up my body. C.S. Lewis put that like this. He said, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union which are intended to go along with it and make up the total union. So Christians are congruent in their sex life. They say, yes, sex is good, but I'm only going to have that unity once, that union once I, give, once I have union with all these other areas of my life. And I used to run into that in counseling. People would say, you know, things like, well, you know, we've been living together, and of course they were sexual, like on the first date. And um, they, they'd say things like, well, we can't talk about faith. That's just too personal. We can't talk about money. That's, that's too personal. But you're having sex. I thought, oh, that's interesting. You can open up your whole body, everything about you, completely bare naked, but I'm not, I'm not going to be naked in that area. Christians say when we get naked physically, we get naked in every other area as well. All right? So sex is a covenant good, not a consumer good. Now, sex is also a communal good. And I wish I had more time to talk about this um, because Lauren Winter writes beautifully about this. Don't think uh, it, sounds like, or it is what it sounds like. Sex is a communal good, meaning that um, as the body of Christ, our sex, what we do in our sex lives affects one another. She, says, she relates this back to Israel. She says, Israel was faithful or unfaithful to God as a community. One person's sin affected the whole community. Think of Achan. You know, his sin affected the whole community of Israel. One person's sin. And it actually caused the rest of his family to be stoned. Likewise, she says, we are a body. Jesus is not coming for us individually, but he's coming for his bride, the church. All of us together. So the way we handle our sexuality affects everyone else. Um, It affects everyone else. So uh, I think you could agree that if you knew that I was in the office all week looking at porn you would listen to me differently today. And if our neighbors out here who are not Christians knew that I was caught up in some illicit affair, cheating on Jenny, and, and into porn, and, and, um, and, and having sex with all these people, all of a sudden, our reputation would be very tainted. 
right? You go out there and they say, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. I heard about what your pastor did. You know, and so in being a leader, I have a bit more responsibility that way. But you likewise, when you go out into the community and people understand that you are sleeping around or, or doing something with your sexual life that is against Christian values, they say, well, don't you say you follow Jesus? You know? I, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. And so it has this, it has this collective effect. Um, now, not only that, but before God, we stand together, pure or unpure, together. So one person's sin affects everyone else. Jesus is not coming for individuals. I'm going to save you and you and you and you. He's coming for his church. And so when one of us sins, it affects the whole group, the whole church. And he wants a pure bride, a spotless bride. He wants to find us using our sexuality um, in the way that he has planned out for us. And this is why Christians are to be in their, in, into each other's lives in sexual matters. Now, this doesn't mean you ask each other, hey, what would you do last night in bed? Married people. You don't describe the events of your bedroom to one another. That's not what she's talking about here. It's not like a Christian locker room talk. Okay? Um, what she's talking about here is that if you suspect that someone is in sexual sin, um, she gives a good example, seven young single girls, Christian girls living together, and one of them goes overnight sometimes and stays overnight at her boyfriend's house. And they don't know what happens. They don't, they're just not sure, but they're really uncomfortable. Like, do we ask her? Do we talk to her? Absolutely you talk to her. You have every bit of a right, because if you're both claiming to follow Christ, you are united as one body. You're connected to each other. And so you must ask her. You must talk to them. It is your responsibility. If you walk into this church, into my office, and you peek through my little window, and you see something on my computer screen that should not be there, you have every bit of a right and responsibility to say, Pastor Dave, what's going on? Or you should talk to the elders if you don't have enough guts to talk to me personally. And I could understand that since I hold a position of power here. But for sure, you have to do something. If you know that someone is living in a sexual relationship that is not right, you have, you have the responsibility in love, in relationship, to call them on it. Now, you shouldn't be, you know, there shouldn't be a police here, okay? You know, somebody who's just suspicious of everybody running around. This is something done in community and relationship with other people. So the people that you're in relationship with, you're responsible for their sexual lives. You just are. It affects you and everyone else. Sociologists are beginning to learn this. One of the big findings that um, Euchre and Rignaris bring out is that porn affects everybody. For a long, long time, everybody said, hey, porn's not a big deal because it only affects one person and it doesn't hurt anybody else. Okay? And they come out and they've said this. They say, now porn affects virtually everyone's relationships. Everyone's relationships. If we really dug down into it, some of our sexual expectations in our marriages are formed by pornography. Um, by the advancement of pornography in today's culture. Um, and, and it creates crushing expectations for sexual relationships. It just does. It, it, it creates all kinds of social dynamics. And so now they're realizing that art affects people, education affects people, informs people, but so does sexuality. It makes you into a certain kind of a person. And so they're realizing that, hey, maybe we need to monitor this a little bit closer. Maybe we need to think about this a little bit deeper. Because you wouldn't want to move into a neighborhood if you knew nine out of ten people there were sex offenders. You wouldn't want to move in there with your kids. Sexuality affects everything. It affects everybody around us. Okay, so according to the Old Testament, sex is a communal good. 
And there's a brief look at it. Now let's look at what Jesus adds to the script or the story. He says, but I tell you, so he's not erasing the Old Testament script. He's saying, I'm going to add to the script. I'm I'm going to add to the story here. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman or a man, this is definitely a woman issue too, lustfully has already committed adultery with her in in his heart. So what's he doing here? He's He's giving us the heart behind the law. He's giving us the fulfillment of the law. He's saying there is a kind of adultery that's just in your heart, and you need to be just as careful about that. He goes as far as saying that lust is connected to adultery. Now, surely by raising this standard, one of the things that he's trying to do is say, hey, you Pharisees, I know you think you've kept the law because you've never slept with someone who wasn't your spouse. But there's something more for you to see here. If you've even looked with lust, you're guilty and in need of grace. You know, he's doing this to, to point them to the need of, for grace, to run to God to say, I need your grace and mercy. I can't fulfill the law. I can't keep it perfectly. And that's what it should do to us as well to say, man, I need God's grace and mercy in this area of sex because I can't be holy enough. I can't be good enough. Okay, that's one of the things Jesus is doing here. But he's also extremely serious about lust in giving us this sexual script to follow. He's serious enough to connect it to adultery, which was punishable by death, by stoning. So you can imagine if you're sitting here and you're listening to Jesus say this and you're a Jew or a Pharisee, and he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery. You're like, well, that means that we all deserve to die. And we all deserve to be stoned. You kidding me, Jesus? We all have eyes. You know? Why is he so serious? Why is he, what's the big deal about lust anyway? Well, the word that Jesus used for lust here is, is deeply connected to three things. It's connected to coveting, greed, and idolatry. And I want to show you a little bit more about lust in these three things. First of all, lust is coveting. It's it's wanting someone um, so badly that you take them captive in your mind. And you begin to fantasize about them the same way you would a material possession. You know, like your neighbor's house or your neighbor's car or their boat. So you want someone so bad that you begin to think, oh, if only I had that person. Or if only I had that sexual experience, then I would finally be happy. And so it it deeply involves our fantasy and the life of our mind, coveting. In this sense, it's also profound ingratitude and discontentment with what God has given you. It's wanting someone else that is not your spouse. If you're married or if you're unmarried, it's just wanting anybody, you know, anybody out there. Um, This can be somebody on a video, somebody in a photo. This can be somebody in real life. Lust is coveting. Next, lust is greed. And it's greed in the sense that it's extreme self-centeredness. It's not concerned about the other person at all. In fact, it has the tendency to objectify people and dehumanize them in that. So, so, so lust wants someone else and wants your needs met so much that you're willing to say, that person is nothing but um, just sexual organs. And it reduces them down. You stop seeing people as human beings with needs and desires and cares and worries and, and hopes and dreams, and you start seeing them as just sex organs. Um, in this way, some writers have even related uh, the pornography um, epidemic to the Holocaust. Because what the big problem was with the Jews and the Nazis was that the Nazis just totally dehumanized them. They just viewed them as, as animals, something to be destroyed. They weren't humans at all. 
And so we, do, we have a way of doing that with our minds, of saying, this person is just a bunch of body parts that exist to satisfy my needs. Lust is greed. You'll do anything to get your needs met, even if that means running people over and treating them as less than human. Lastly, lust is idolatry. And it's idolatry in the sense that it says, if I can't have this person, or if I can't do this thing sexually, then I can't be happy. Um, If I can't have my needs met in this way, I can't be fulfilled. It says that my deepest core longings can be met in the arms of a man or a woman. That's why lust is idolatry. Now, part of the Christian script, part of the Christian story about sex, is that God is God, and we declare that sex is not God. And maybe that seems like obvious to you, but that's not obvious to our world. Um, And along with that, if we declare that sex is not God, then we declare that anyone, any Christian, can be perfectly whole, perfectly complete, and perfectly happy and never, ever have sex. You can be single your whole life and never have sex. Both Jesus and the Apostle Paul say, actually recommend this kind of a chaste, single lifestyle. Now, now how countercultural is that? To say that you can never have sex and be fulfilled and be complete and be a whole person? I mean, are you kidding me? Jesus says it. Apostle Paul says it. Because God is God. Sex is not God. God is the one that fills you. God is the one that gives you everything that you need. And so the Christian says about anything um, and about any person, um, because I have God, I can live without you. That's the basic Christian ethic towards sex. That's the basic Christian attitude. Okay, so that's what Jesus adds to the ethic. He says, he says this, there's this heart adultery that you also need to be concerned about, and he makes it very serious. Now, look at the end when Jesus urges us to do whatever it takes to follow this script. He's saying, he's saying do whatever it takes. And he uses this graphic imagery. He says, gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands. And, and of course, I hope none of you believe that this is literal here. That Jesus means that we actually do this. But instead, he's, he's going at something here. He's trying to etch a story on our minds so that we won't forget it. Just like Cosmo's trying to etch something on your minds. Just like Playboy and Penthouse are trying to etch something on your minds. You know, just like even men's health or, or, or women's health. You ever read those magazines? They have a sexual script for you to follow. Sex is an athletic event. Sex is is something to achieve. Um, Sex is something that you get better and better at the more partners you try. Sex is something that's thrilling and exciting. They have a sexual script for you to follow, and Jesus is saying, now you just hold on a second. I'm giving you a sexual script here. I want something to be written on your brain so powerfully that you'll never forget it. And so he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's hard to forget that. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Why why is he so intense here? Why is he talking about hell? He's gotten really serious now. He's talking about hell. Um, well, the word for hell here is Gehenna, which can mean two things, and I think both of them are very significant. The first thing is what you're thinking of. Um, hell is in the lake of fire. And so Jesus is saying, if you follow the script of lust, if you follow that path, it's going to lead you to an idolatry of sex, looking to sex to satisfy all the needs that you should be going to God to get. And that will cause 
you to spend an eternity separated from God. You'll worship something created rather than the creator God. And that, to Jesus, is as serious as eternal life and eternal death. For this reason, we must take lust very seriously. And I would ask you, how seriously are you taking lust? Is it as serious an issue to you as it is to Jesus? You know, we, we tend to minimize it in our culture because we live in a very sexualized culture. It's everywhere. And we tend to say things like, well, I am a man after all. You know? Um, I have needs. Um, you know? Um, we tend to think, oh, it's, it's harmless. You look at a Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. Oh, it's, just, it's, it's no big deal. It's just harmless. Um, it's harmless to read that romance novel and, and imagine myself with that man. How, how he would fulfill me. It's harmless. No, Jesus says this, this idea about lust is extremely serious. And of course, partly because it forms us into the kind of people that we become. But I wonder, is, is your seriousness about lust changing the things that you do? Is it changing your lifestyle at all? Is it changing the places that you go to? Is it changing the movies that you watch and the, and the books that you read and the magazines that you read? Are you paying attention to the sexual scripts that are coming into your brain saying, hey, wait a minute, this is, this is a different sexual script than Jesus handed out. This is, this is forming me. This is forming the way that I think about sex. I'm not going to read this. I'm not going to take this in. I'm not going to watch this. It's not because it's forbidden. Movies aren't forbidden. TV shows aren't forbidden for Christians. But some of it just frankly isn't helpful. Some of it just frankly doesn't do you any good because it starts forming you in the opposite thing. So Jesus is making a serious deal out of lust. Is it as serious of a deal to you? The second meaning of the word Gehenna is an actual place outside of Jerusalem. It's a valley outside of Jerusalem where they used to burn the trash. A miserable place. And so the idea of Gehenna gets at the idea of an unquenchable thirst and unfulfilled longing. And Jesus says that lust puts us on the path to unquenchable thirst and unfulfilled longing. It puts us on the path of that. Now, we can understand this because we, you know, science and research is starting to show us this about porn. Um, that one of the truest and most awful characteristics about lust is the deepening of escalation and the, and the deepening of longing the more one tries to satisfy it. You ever notice that? Rebecca DeYoung writes about using porn. She says it's an activity with incredible addiction and escalation rate meaning you do it more the more you do it. Habitual viewers not only quickly increase their frequency of use to the point where it dominates their lives, some people actually spend entire work days looking at porn. I mean, this is serious. Entire work days, eight-hour days, looking for just the right thing. She says it increases in frequency and the use where, to the point where it dominates their lives, but the level of perversity and novelty required to pique their interest also quickly spins beyond the range of what, should, what would shock even a more jaded adult. So it gets more and more perverse, more and more weird. Why is that? Why is that? Um, you know, it's like a person is out in the middle of the ocean drinking seawater, thinking Sometime, this is going to satisfy my thirst. I'm so thirsty. And the more they drink the seawater, the more thirsty they get. So the more you say, man, I have this longing, I'm going to go to porn, I'm going to go to sex to fulfill that longing, and then the more you long for it, so you say, well, I need more of that to fulfill that longing. And it becomes this endless cycle of doing the same thing and getting an increasingly opposite result. It's an addiction. 
But why is this? Why is it that the more we try to satisfy lust, the more we crave? The more our longings go unmet? Well, this is because lust seeks to satisfy every human desire in sexual pleasure. It seeks the totality of human fulfillment in sexual pleasure. And here's the thing, friends. You were made to be completely satisfied and happy. That was God's intention for you, but not completely satisfied and happy in the sexual act. That is not supposed to satisfy every part of you. That's supposed to be one small good thing in your life, a gift from God. But it's not supposed to satisfy you completely. Only God can completely satisfy you the way that you need to be. St. Augustine in the third century struggled greatly with this, and maybe some of you will relate to him. Um, he, He struggled so badly with his libido that he prayed one day, Lord, make me chaste, but please don't do it just yet. Maybe that's some of your uh, heart cry. You're so addicted to this, you still believe this is finally going to quench my thirst. That you're, that you're praying like Augustine did. Hey, make me chase, but can I just please have a little more of that seawater? Can I please just drink a little more of that? Because I, I, I'm convinced it's going to satisfy me. Well, Augustine learned, and I believe he, um, he learned the secret here when he later on in his life prayed, um, He wrote to God, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. In other words, our longings are unmet until they're met in you, God. Our desires go unsatisfied until our desires are satisfied in you. We will yearn until our yearnings are met in you, God. And so Augustine found what he needed to find. And the Christian script about sex points us here. It points us to fulfillment in God. It points us to finding all of our satisfaction in, in him. The Christian script about sex uh, says that we're formed by our behavior, so it's very important to God, but also because of what, where it's pointing us. If lust is pointing us to unmet longings and unquenchable thirst, then what is marriage pointing us to? Because the Christian script is sex only inside the covenant of marriage. So what is marriage pointing us to? Well, our marriages are meant to point us to another marriage that we will participate in very soon the marriage when Jesus Christ comes back for his church and when he puts everything right and when he meets all of our longings, our deepest longings, at the, at the deepest possible level. The unconditional love of our spouses is supposed to point us to the end when we will finally fall into the, lo- the arms of our true spouse who will love us more deeply than we've ever imagined. That's what it's supposed to point us to. The faithfulness in our marriage is supposed to make us into a faithful kind of people like God our faithful God, who is going to be faithful to the commitment, the covenant that he made, and he's going to fulfill that covenant. As it says in Revelation 21, he's going to come back, and he's going to be our God, and we're going to be his people. And he's going to satisfy us. He's going to wipe every tear away from our eyes. And no longer will we run after all these different things to try to fill us and complete us, because finally we'll be home. Mentally, physically, psychologically, emotionally. We'll be home. We'll be satisfied. Our thirst will be quenched. So the question is today, which script are you following, people? Which script are you following today? Are you following the world script that says, the more you go after sex, the more you'll find fulfillment? You, you just need a different kind of sex. You need just this way, or this person, or this thing. Or this will finally fulfill you, and it'll wind you up in hell. With unquenchable thirst and longing, far away from the only one that can truly satisfy you. Are you following the script that Jesus lays out here to use sex as a covenant good which points us 
to the only place where we're really fulfilled, which is in God. Which path are you on today? Which script are you following? If you're really struggling here today with sexual sin, my message to you is not just knock it off. Um, My message to you is not just stop wanting to be satisfied. But my message instead is start trying to be satisfied in the only place that you actually can be. Start looking for satisfaction in the right place. Because satisfaction is only available in Him. Now, how do you do that? Well, you can only find satisfaction in the one who's teaching the lesson today, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the one that has made satisfaction possible for you. You see, friends, Jesus Christ, the one teaching this lesson on lust, has come into our messy sexual situation, our fallen brokenness, and He's paid the price for all of our sexual sin. Yours, mine, every one of us. And He said, I'm going to take your place, bear your sin, and it cost Him His own life, but He rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death, so that you and I can have power over our sexual sin, and that we can have the promise that someday even our deepest needs will be satisfied. My prayer that you would begin to look for the satisfaction you need and want in Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for uh, sexuality as it is a gift from You, Lord. And um, we thank You for singleness as that is also a gift. Um, We thank you, Lord, that you have given us a script to follow for um, our lives as sexual people. We thank you that um, you have told us how we can be satisfied and that that satisfaction is only in you. We thank you that we don't have to spin around and around and around trying to find it in things of this world, trying to find it in the arms of another lover, but that we can run to you, Lord. And so I pray today that each one of us today would run to you and say, Lord, I need to be loved. And I I cannot be loved like I need to be loved by anyone here on earth. I need it from you. I need to be satisfied, Lord. Will you satisfy me deeply in all the places that I don't even know how to satisfy? Will you quench the thirst in us, God, that causes us to run to sin, that causes us to run to things that will only make us more thirsty? We love you, Lord Jesus, and we trust you today. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.